As Chad mentioned in his greeting, uh, it has been uh, five and a half months since we were last in the book of Matthew. Uh, We wrapped up our study through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which concluded at the end of Matthew chapter 7, December 19th. And uh, now here, middle of May, we're going to be back getting into the swing of things. Um, as I was kind of contemplating it, again, Chad joked, it's the longest sermon prep um, in history. It is true uh, that I have spent uh, some time uh, mulling over this particular passage of Scripture. And, um, and you know, as I was thinking about it last night, uh, in way of introduction, um, this is, in, in a lot of ways, kind of the sermon uh, that wasn't to be. Um, you know, back um, in... The end of January, the beginning of February, um, the doctors had all but, but written me off, and yet the Lord had a, a different plan, and this uh, was going to be a series that ended abruptly at the end of chapter 7, um, and there was a, a period of time where I never thought uh, I would be able to get back to Matthew 8 and to finish something that I had started uh, that the Lord had begun, and, um, and I was thinking about that last night. I was chewing on that, and, and uh, this might be more information than you need, but I, I had a particularly rough uh, time falling asleep last night. My, my arms were, were throbbing, my hands were hurting, and, uh, and I, I remember Jess kept asking, you know, is there anything that I can do to help? And it's like, honey, you, there's really nothing uh, you can do. It's, it's just the nerves, and, and it is what it is, and, and that's fine. Um, but I, I made the comment, I said, I feel like Satan is attacking me here. You know, that he knows that uh, I'm going to do something tomorrow uh, that's a long time coming. I'm going to stand behind a pulpit, and I'm going to proclaim God's word. And uh, he doesn't want me to have a good night's sleep beforehand. Um, I do better when I don't sleep anyway, so he had the wrong strategy. Um, But at the same time, I I kind of, as I laid there, I I was chewing on that thought. And and again, this is something a little abnormal in the way that I would begin a Bible study. Um, But I can't help but think... um, that maybe, maybe, uh, this was the Bible study that Satan didn't want anyone to hear. Um, that these four verses that begin Matthew chapter 8, uh, and what the Lord has laid on my heart for years about these four verses, was something that didn't need to be articulated. And, and again, I'm not trying to play the Holy Spirit this morning. Uh, and, I, and again, I know that this is kind of an odd way to start a Bible study, but I really do believe it. As I, as I was sitting there contemplating and thinking um, about the text, about what, had, what has transpired, about the, you know, my life over the five months uh, between chapters, I couldn't help but think that maybe, maybe, just maybe, uh, the Lord has something that he wants to say to you and that he has done everything possible to prohibit you from hearing it, Um, and if that even required taking me down in the process, that Satan knows no bounds, Um, he has incredible amount of tactics, and that maybe there was a spiritual component to this, so um, I pray that you would have an open heart, an open mind about maybe, just maybe, the Lord has something he wants to say to you this morning. And, uh, and so if you join me, let's pray, and then we're just going to dive into God's Word. Father, Lord, you have promised that when we are at our weakest, you demonstrate your strength. And Lord, I feel that way. I really do this morning. Lord, with the, the inability to use my arms, 
Uh, Lord, the inability, therefore, to, to type out notes. <clears throat> Lord, it, it, does, it puts me in a very um, awkward position, an uncomfortable one. Uh, and yet, Lord, I'm not going to allow these things to deter. Lord, you're calling on my life, Lord, to teach your word. And so, Lord, here I am at, at, my, at my weakest, but Lord, I pray that you'd be strong. And Lord, that they might not be my words, but Lord, may they be yours. Lord, may you cause this text to come alive. Lord, to each of us in, in a radical way, a relevant way. Lord, you have promised that your word will not return void. Lord, that it does something within us. Something, Lord, that can not be explained, something supernatural. Lord, so as we plan ourselves by rivers of living water, Lord, may you speak to us, may you encourage us. <clears throat> may your will be accomplished in this place. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. If I were to ask you to list out maybe the top ten miracles of Jesus, understandably there are several that would would pop up to your mind, that would, that would make your list. Whether you're, you're churched or not, there are some miracles of Jesus that, that are famous, that everyone knows, the feeding of the 5,000. That would clearly make your list. Aside from that, um, if you've spent any time around children's ministry at any point in your life, you would have thought about Jesus walking on the water, a miracle. No doubt, Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus, pretty radical. It would make your list. There's a lot of miracles that would make your list. I would gander, though, that this miracle we're about to read here at the beginning of Matthew chapter 8 probably wouldn't top your top 10 list. And as a result, you would be a bit misguided because this, of all of the miracles, is a biggin. It's a biggin because of the implications of it of what Jesus was articulating to the world through it. An important miracle, absolutely. Maybe not the flashiest. Maybe not the most radical and, and it's, it's awness. But still powerful nonetheless and important for us this morning. So let's go ahead with all that being said. Let's dive right into the text. Matthew chapter 8. Again after a five and a half month break. <laughs> Verse 1. And when Jesus had come down from the mountain, so from the mountain, he's articulated the kind of the, the, the law of the kingdom. He's taught this incredible sermon known as, obviously, the Sermon on the Mount for its location. So Jesus finishes this dissertation. He finishes this great sermon. He comes down from the mountain. And we're told that great multitudes followed him. So Jesus here is in a season of ministry known as a period of, of popularity. The first year of Jesus' ministry, he was, for the most part, an unknown quantity, kind of a period of obscurity, which was then followed by the second year where his popularity soared. Great crowds, huge multitudes were following him around the Galilee, following him when he would go down into the Jordan, up into Jerusalem. Period of popularity. If you're a note taker, the third period, the last year, would be a, a period of opposition, ultimately culminating in his betrayal and arrest and crucifixion. But Jesus here, he's in this sweet spot. 
this second year of ministry. His fame is spreading throughout the area. Great multitudes are coming to hear what he has to say, but also to, to be wowed by some of the miracles that he was performing. Understandably, Jesus performed miracles to validate his words, that his words had power, his words had authority. And so he demonstrated that authority by also performing miraculous signs and wonders, as only Jesus could. So we're told he comes down from the mountain, great multitudes are following him, verse 2, and behold. Now, when, when we come across this word behold, it tells the, the reader, the author is articulating to the reader, that you need to think about something. That, that this behold, take a moment, consider this is significant. This is important. It's something to behold. A leper, Matthew writes, came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, I want to pause right there for a few minutes, because in order to really understand the scene being described by Matthew, you have to understand, well, leprosy, and then the plight of the leper. In today's modern medicine, leprosy is known as Hansen's disease. It's a bacterial infection. It's untreatable. Uh, people do live with it and can survive it. There are therapeutics for it. it is, uh, there's no cure for leprosy. Uh, you can visit leper colonies today. My mom did mission work in, in Peru and, and, and visited uh, a leper colony. There's leper colonies all across the world. Uh, Hansen's disease, leprosy, again, is a terrible affliction. Uh, what ends up happening is that leprosy uh, attacks the nervous system. And so it, it, it causes a, a desensitivity in, in your ability to experience pain or, or just generally touch. Uh, the particular bacteria prefers warmth. So it begins in your outer extremities. It's where it targets a lot of times, lepers are known for their deformity, uh, especially the longer the disease uh, metastasizes, the longer uh, it continues, uh, the more deformed an individual becomes. Uh, you can see images, if you were to Google it, um, of missing appendages, you know, missing fingers, missing toes. Uh, you'll also see noses uh, that come off, your ears. Uh, again, it, it begins in, in areas of warmth, uh, the outer extremities. One of the, the ironies, though, is that somehow leprosy causes rot and that, you know, fingers fall off and, and, and noses are deformed because of, of rot. It's actually much, much worse than that, especially in this particular day and age, the first century, um, when things were largely unsanitary. Um, imagine for just a moment, you know, you, you're losing the ability to, to, to feel pain, to feel anything. And so you're walking along, and let's say you were to, to, to step on a shard of glass or a piece of pottery, broken pottery, and you slice your foot open. Now, for most normal people, ouch, that hurts, I need a bandage. And, and yet, if you were a, a leper or your leprosy had been advanced, you would step on a piece of pottery or a piece of glass, you would cut your foot open, but you wouldn't feel it. And so you would continue walking along, and streets that doubled as sewage canals uh, getting infections. And, and it would take a while where finally you see the trail of blood behind you, and you're like, oh my goodness, my foot, uh, you know, is, is in bad shape. Uh, worse still, if you were, um, again, imagine not being able to experience touch 
uh, at night. It's cold. And so there's a fire. And so you're getting yourself as close as you can to, to just stay warm. But maybe you're a, a turner. And you toss and turn when you fall asleep. And at some point, uh, a limb ends up a little too close. And so there you are on fire. And yet you can't feel it. How long does it burn? Until your brain starts sending off signals, you are on fire. Again, deformity caused by just the insensitivity to pain. Worse still, imagine sleeping in, in, a, in an unsanitary area and a big old rat comes walking by, takes a look at your nose and says, that looks delicious. And just starts, you know, having its own midnight snack. Again, how long until you wake up thinking, there's a rat staring directly at me, eating my nose off. Again, deformity caused by leprosy. Leprosy was a, a terrible condition, a, a terrible plight. Within Jewish culture, though, beyond it just being an illness, there was a lot of stigma about leprosy in regards to its contagion. There was mystery in regards to how someone was afflicted by leprosy. There was uh, mystery in regards to how it spread. A lot of unknowns. You could even say that there might have been a bit of disinformation about the spread of an illness. Not that we would know anything about such a thing. And yet, in that culture, they experienced this. At some point, for this individual, this leper, he noticed that he had a chronic itch. Whether it was on his arm or on his leg, an itch. It was difficult, it was awkward. Didn't think much of it, but it continued. And then the, the redness that would have naturally developed because of scratching and itching, it started to become ashen. Now that's alarming. That's not a good thing. You're trying to conceal it, trying to temper down what might be happening. Deep buried in the back of your mind, though, there is this thought. Could it be? You, you dispel any, any type of notions. You continue on with your life. But that itch gets worse, and it becomes more ashen, and it begins to spread. At some point, it's kind of an unavoidable uh, problem. Now, according to the law, Leviticus 13, there were procedures uh, established to deal with leprosy. So you're not sure if it's leprosy or not. You hope to all goodness it isn't. But you're to go and present yourself to the priest. I won't bore you with all the procedures surrounding the diagnosing of leprosy, but we know by the way this individual is introduced that he had gotten terrible news. He had presented himself to the priest. The procedures had been done. The diagnosis was clear. You have leprosy. Now understand immediately for this individual, that diagnosis had incredible ramifications. In fact, devastating ramifications. For this individual, the moment he got the bad news, his life changed forever. Now, again, we don't know anything about this individual beyond the fact he's introduced to us as a leper. But let's just play it out a little. The first thing, if he had a wife, if he had, if he had kids, if he had a family, 
He had to leave. He had to leave his home. He had to leave the city. He had to leave civilization. He had to live and reside in the outskirts with other lepers. He couldn't kiss his wife. He couldn't share a bed. He couldn't kiss his children or walk them to school or to the synagogue. For all points and purposes, this leper would watch, and it was even customary, that a funeral would take place. Now, he's alive, but to his family, he's dead. He can't come around. He can't expose. He's dead. He is, for all points and purposes, a dead man walking, alienated from society, cut off from his family. All of his relationships ruined. He can't go to work. Again, his only associations are other lepers, others infected with the same particular illness. Aside from that, regarding religion, we can assume this is likely a a Jewish individual from the general context, although the passage doesn't say particularly. But if we play it out that way, this leper, again, the moment he's diagnosed, He is cut off from his God. He can no longer go to the temple. He can no longer go to pray. He can no longer go to worship. He can no longer go to offer the necessary sacrifices essential for his own atonement. He can't offer the sin sacrifices. He can't go and worship. He's cut off. He can't visit the local synagogue. Again, a dead man walking, not just from society and from his family, but also from his God. He's an outcast declared by the law of God to be unclean. And therefore, he cannot approach. He is separated and he is alienated. A terrible situation. This leper. The Jews, specifically the, the religious establishment there in Israel, the experts concerning the law and, and all things religion, They viewed leprosy, they actually called it the finger of God. And they they viewed it as being a judgment. Now now it's at this point, I want to pivot just a little bit. Leprosy. Again, in our modern context, we know it to be Hansen's disease. We have an actual clinical diagnosis for it, a a write-up. And yet, what's interesting is that It may be a leap to conclude that what we understand in our modern context of leprosy might be different in an ancient context of leprosy. Again, the Jews had a different way of viewing it. Now, we know today that leprosy is not an airborne illness. It's a bacteria. And yet there was a lot of of worry about it spreading by just uh, by breathing. In fact, according to uh, Jewish tradition in, in extra-biblical writings, a leper had to ring a bell anytime they came close to people, crying out, leper, leper, so that people could flee. And yet we know leprosy doesn't spread like that. In fact, it's, it's, very, it's very hard to spread from one individual to another. It could be, again, the Jews viewing leprosy as a judgment of God, that this is a different type of illness altogether, Maybe with some similarities, but maybe with some differences. I could build a case and make an argument that it may in fact be the judgment of God. 
In fact, if you do a study of leprosy and the scriptures, you will note, especially within its context of the people of God, that every time you see leprosy, it is in the context of a judgment. A great example, one of many, would be Miriam, the sister of Moses, who challenged his authority. And what happened? We're told God struck her with leprosy. It was a judgment. It was the finger of God. And then, of course, she repented and was healed. But there are numerous examples. It could very well be that this individual, for some reason, had experienced God's judgment in the form of this illness. Now, it could have been contracted through natural causes, but it may just, in fact, be a judgment. Which adds an, an interesting context to what the man does, doesn't it? Because here he is, Jesus has just finished preaching this sermon. The Sermon on the Mount. He comes off the hill, there he's in the Galilee. Great multitudes are, are about him. And this leper approaches. Now, now this leper is, is denying and going against all cultural norms, all medical protocols. He's not wearing a mask. I mean, he is barging into the crowd. He's ringing his bell. He's crying out, I'm a leper, I'm a leper. He's making his way to Jesus. People are diving for cover. I mean, it is quite a scene if you place yourself within the context. This leper has no business being around people, yet alone approaching Jesus. I can see as, as, as he gets closer and closer, the disciples, the A-team, the twelve, are looking at one another. Who's going to take the bullet? You know, we got to protect Jesus. Who's going to tackle the leper? I mean, they're crowd control, security. Interestingly enough, this man gets all the way to Jesus, so they were cowards. And yet we're told, look at the text again. So the leper came, and then Matthew uses a very interesting word. He says, and worshipped him. This is a, a detail that's unique to Matthew's account. You'll find a parallel um, reading in, in the Gospel of Mark in the first chapter. Uh, this detail, though, is, is unique to Matthew. Something must have really st stuck out to him about the posture, the attitude of this man. You know, he wasn't coming through the crowd to be a jerk. He didn't want to put anyone at risk. But the man recognized something in Jesus, the spark of divinity, I wonder if he had been at a distance listening to the Sermon on the Mount. Whether leprosy had been a judgment or a natural cause, he was a dead man walking. He had no hope. He was lost. He was dead. There was no cure. There was no remedy. Nothing could be done. Religion? His priest had written him off, had sent him packing. His family had buried him effectively. His friends turned their back. Like this man is at a point of, of, of utter desperation. Nothing could be done. And yet as he stands at a distance and he hears Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit. As he hears Jesus talking about loving your enemies, 
and being kind to those who persecute. As he hears these sweet words coming from the Messiah, his heart is stirred. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus can heal me. Again, another detail that that places uh, this particular miracle in, in a very interesting context is that Jesus has never healed a leper before. Again, this is an incurable disease wrapped in a ton of stigma. Interesting associations. Jesus has performed miracles understandably. Radical miracles, profound miracles, supernatural miracles. But to heal a leper, well, that's on a different level. That's on a different plane. Could he even do it? He's yet to raise Lazarus from the dead. You know, okay, you can heal a blind guy. But, but leprosy, leprosy, could you heal a leper? And yet this man, for him, it, it doesn't matter. He sees an opportunity and he goes. And he doesn't care what anyone thinks about him. He doesn't care what anyone says to him. Understandably, people would have been ridiculing him, looking at him, scorning him. How dare you place everyone at risk? Mothers are grabbing their children. The elderly and their walkers are moving as fast as they can out of the way. And yet this man, at least from Matthew's perspective, he's worshiping. And then he records what the man is saying. He says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The first observation from what the man says is the tense in which he's saying it. Saying. It's in the active tense. It's repetitive. It wasn't as though the man makes his way, gets to Jesus, kneels down, and says, Lord. No. As he's making his way through the crowd, as he begins this march from a distance, he is saying and repeating and saying and repeating, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He's repeating this as he comes before Jesus. Also note the way in which he addresses Jesus. It says a lot about his attitude, doesn't it? About his perspective. It says a lot about his conclusion regarding Jesus. Lord, Kyrios, Christ, you are my Lord. Now again, imagine... This man has experienced a life change. Everything the man holds dear has been ripped from him. Everything the man has has been taken. Everything the man loves is gone. You know, it it wouldn't be outside of the realm of imagination that the man might have been a bit bitter especially regarding God. We can understand that. In fact, there's, there's a measure in which each of us could, could kind of sympathize with such a perspective. What a tragedy. I mean, God, you're in control. Why would you allow such a thing to happen? Why me? And yet he comes and he says, Lord, Lord. Now also notice 
that the man does not doubt Jesus' ability to heal him, does he? And to me, that it, it, it's, it's an amazing, amazing point to consider within the context that Jesus has never healed a leper before. And yet for this man, he has reached the conclusion that Jesus is God, that he is the divine, that he is the creator. Lord, I believe you can heal me. I know you can heal me. I know that you can do this. I believe that you have the power to do it. I believe you have the authority to do it. That being said, what does the man doubt? What does he question? He comes and he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The man knows that Jesus can make him clean. And and again, don't minimize what being made clean would, would imply for him. It would be the full restoration of all that he had lost. All that this disease had stripped from him, had taken from him. If he was cleansed, he could go back to his family and his wife, his job, and his friends. And he could go back to the temple and he could worship God and he could offer sacrifice. And yet, if you were willing. This is one of the reasons that that I think leprosy, while, while probably having a lot of similarities to Hansen's disease, is, is probably something a bit different. Again, the rabbi is calling it the finger of God, seeing a judgment within the disease itself. I think that there probably was a judgment. In fact, I'm kind of, uh, of, the, of the position, I'm convinced, again, by what the man says, and the heart behind, if you are willing, that what, is, what, what, what does he doubt? He doubts God's willingness. Why? Because he sees his plight as just. I deserved it. It doesn't make it easier. It doesn't lessen the bitterness or the hurt. But he understands why. And he's not sure Jesus would heal him. He knows Jesus can, but he doesn't know if Jesus would want to. Have you, ever, have you ever been in a similar place? Again, you know, I'm not going to speculate on whatever your hidden sin might be or might not be. But you know what it is. And, and have you ever, thinking about that thing, thought, you know, I know Jesus can, can take this hurt from me, or I know Jesus can heal me of this burden. I know that he can restore. I know that he can do it, but I just don't know if he would want to. I can't tell you how often that I've, I've come across people where they know Jesus is God, and they know he's powerful, and they, they know he can, but their big hang-up is whether or not Jesus would want to. But Zach... You don't know what what I'm doing. Or you don't know what I've done. If Jesus really knew, he wouldn't want anything to do with me. This leper comes and he worships and he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Let's look at how Jesus responds. Verse 3. 
So Jesus rebuked the man and sent him away. Nope. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Now, <clears throat> you need to understand this word cleansed. The word cleansed here, it, it doesn't just mean that his leprosy was removed from him. Which, by the way, would have been a great start, right? I mean, you're no longer a leper. But let's say this leprosy is advanced. Let's say he has spent years with this particular illness, and as a result, as a consequence, the deformities that came right along with it. The idea of being cleansed is not just that the leprosy was removed from him, but that he was completely and fully restored. That, that's what the word means in its original language and its original context. Imagine this man in rags, in the attire of a beggar, broken, deformed. Leprosy attacks ultimately the spinal column. This man's likely hunchback. His tendons have, have retreated. His hands take on the look of claws. Same with his feet. It's very difficult to walk. The man doesn't even really look human anymore when it comes to Jesus. And yet Jesus here, he cleanses him of his leprosy. The leprosy is gone and in an instant, immediately, Matthew says. Immediately. The, like a snap of a finger, which I would love to do right now, but I can't. Boom. The leprosy is gone. His nose grows back. His fingers are restored. His spine straightens up. He stands and he turns. Imagine the reaction of all those standing by. Of all those that are witnessing the moment. Notice how Jesus heals the man. We're told that he put out his hand and touched him. Now, according to Jewish law, the very moment that Jesus touched the leper, he would himself been unclean. Now, that doesn't mean that he would have had leprosy, so to speak, but Again, according to Leviticus 13, there's all kinds of protocols that would immediately go into effect. In fact, in our day, people in hazmat suits would have descended, a helicopter swoop in, plastic put around Jesus, mask him, take him, quarantine. We got to make sure he's okay. The interesting thing is no one could, could do that to Jesus because no one could prove there was a leper around anymore. And yet Jesus reached out and touched the leper. Imagine the moment for that man. When was the last time he had experienced human touch? When was the last time anyone loved him enough, cared enough about him to reach out and touch him? Think about the moment. 
where he sees Jesus extend his hand. Did he recoil? Did he pull back? I know he felt it because he was immediately cleansed. Think about that. Not being able to feel touch. And then you can. Sensitivity comes back. Again, we're not told in the text, but I can imagine that the man is weeping. I just felt again. You touched me. In John's gospel, we are given a list. It's a list of seven. Seven regarding numerology and scripture indicates completeness. Seven days to a week, completeness. Seven notes to a scale, completeness. Sevens indicate completeness. In John's gospel, there's a period of Jesus' ministry in which uh, as he's teaching the people, he ends up making seven statements uh, concerning himself. We call them the I am statements. Famously, I am the door. I am the gate. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Seven I am statements that Jesus makes regarding himself. Each of these statements dealing with a different component of, of who he is, what his mission was, what he had come to accomplish. Seven I am statements. I see that there's an eighth. Again, numerology tells us that eight is new beginning, that eight is grace, that eight is not, de- not deservingness. It's undeserved merit. It's favor bestowed. An eighth, my favorite, Jesus looks at the leper, and what does he say? He doesn't say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I am. This man comes to Jesus. He's got nothing to lose. Understandably, he is carrying the burdens of the world. He feels like a failure. He questions Jesus' willingness. Not his ableness, but his willingness. I am being judged by God, and I know I deserve what I'm getting. I am alienated. I am cut off. And I know it. And I know I deserve it, and I know it's just. I know you can do something about it. I just don't know if you would be willing, but I'm coming anyway. I got nothing to lose, and I'm falling before you, and I'm worshiping. You are my Lord. If you are willing, you can make me clean. If you are willing, you can make me clean. If you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reaches down to the shock of everyone present. Peter turns to John, and they're like, the hospital bills are going to be through the roof. And Jesus touches the man. And he says, I am willing. And then he says, be cleansed. Then we're told the leprosy left. He was cleaned. But but notice the order. The man comes. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus touches him. Reaches out his hand and he touches him. Does the leprosy leave the man when Jesus touches him? No. The man is still a leper. Jesus then says, as he's touching him, I am willing. 
And then what does Jesus say? Then Jesus issues the edict. He gives the order. And he says, be cleansed. And as with everything in the world, even the leprosy has to obey Jesus. And the man is just, he's cleansed and he's restored. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one. But go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Again, Matthew kind of gives us a little bit of the commentary, some of the context for this very unique declaration, instruction. Again, this man's life has just been changed. For the first time, a leper has been cleansed. I should add that not only is this the first time that Jesus has healed a leper, but this is the first time a leper has ever been cleansed in the land of Israel. Again, Miriam was in the wilderness. Naaman was a Syrian. If you go back, you can look, study it. At no point has a leper ever been healed in the land of Israel. Interesting. Because then Jesus tells the man, not, not don't go tell anyone, because he tells him to go tell somebody. He says, go, present yourself to the priest, and all this will be a testimony. So there is records of the man being diagnosed a leper, but Jesus tells him, go back to the religious establishment that condemned you, that wrote you off, and present yourself. Now, I love playing this scene out in my head because this has never happened before. Right? No one that the priests have ever diagnosed as, as being a leper has ever come back being like, hey, it's gone. Never happened. Interestingly enough, there's an entire chapter of instruction on what to do that has never been used in Israel. I could see the man coming, knocking at the door, being like, hey, uh, priest, remember me? Yeah, I'm uh, no longer a leper. And I've been instructed to come, and you've got to kind of do the, do the thing apparently. And the priest is like, I, uh, um, you know, he immediately calls a buddy. and He's like, hey, I don't remember this in Bible college. Um, there was an obscure passage. Wasn't there something, something? It has to be close to the chapter diagnosing leprosy, right? So they pull out the scrolls and they're scrolling through it. That's what you do with the scroll. You scroll. And they get to the passage. Hey, it's chapter 14. Interesting, the law. The very middle. The very middle of the law, you have the diagnosing of leprosy or sin. And then you have the protocol for the healing of leprosy or sin. And they go through the process and they declare him and he offers the sacrifices. And the whole point of this is that Jesus is letting the religious establishment know that something different is happening, something unique is occurring, that even the lepers... Again, I, I mentioned leprosy. There's a type. And it's consistent throughout Scripture that leprosy is a picture of sin. Leprosy, sin, it follows the same pattern, doesn't it? Sin starts off in our lives very subtly. It starts off as kind of an itch. But if it's not dealt with, it grows and it metastasizes. And what does it really do when it's all said and done? 
It desensitizes you, doesn't it? It makes you numb. Practically, think about this for just a moment in your own life. You don't have to air the dirty laundry, but like you, you, you do something that you know is wrong. You know it's wrong. You know it's a sin. And you felt guilty about it. But you do it again. And the next time you do it, it's like, yeah, that was wrong, and I feel bad about it. I know I shouldn't have done it. And then you do it again. You know, the more you do it, what happens? At some point, you stop feeling bad about it. You stop feeling guilty over it. You start to become desensitized by it. And then over time, what is that desensit—you know, growing desensitized to it? What, what happens? It begins to wreak havoc. You wake up one day and your marriage is destroyed. And your friends have bailed. Sin. When we look at sin in the garden, what did it do? It immediately ruined relationships, didn't it? I mean, from the very beginning, God comes to Adam and is like, bro, what's up? And he's like, well, I'm going to be honest. It's this woman. <laughs> and then he has the audacity to be like, that you gave me. Adam not only blames his wife, he blames God for giving him his wife. If you never brought her into my life, things would have been just peachy. And then, and then what happens? Eve, what's well, the serpent? The blame game began. Like, and it didn't take long for sin to really wreak havoc in human relationships. The first two bros, one killed the other because of jealousy and envy. Sin. And what did it also do? It alienated them from God. They used to enjoy unfettered access. They would walk with God in the cool of the evening. And yet because of sin, they needed covering and they were kicked out of the garden. Leprosy. Sin. To me, I don't think it's an accident that this is the first miracle following the Sermon on the Mount. Because if you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you study the Sermon on the Mount, you feel, as I noted, very inadequate. The ideals that Jesus presents are so lofty that no one can live up to them. No one can attain them. In fact, we all feel and should feel small. Well, I love those that love me, but you want me to love my enemy? How do I do that? And then following all of that, Jesus says, I am willing. You know, this morning, I, I, I must say that whatever you've come here carrying, whatever burden you feel is keeping you separated, whatever sin that might be, keeping you from Jesus. And you can say what the leper said. I know you can deal with it. I just don't know if you would want to. Jesus says to you as he says to the leper, friend, 
I am willing. Just come. No judgment. You know, the irony is the Lord already knows. And yet he's still willing. And he wants to touch you. And he wants to declare you to be clean and perfect in his eyes. In closing, I should also add, you know, when we look at Christ, there is kind of this within Christianity understanding that we're to be, as Christians, Christ-like, right? It's kind of the whole idea of Christian. First used in Antioch as a derogatory slang, little Christs. To be a Christian is to emulate Christ. May I ask, are you willing? When the leper comes around you, that person that's hurting, that person that's broken, that person experiencing God's judgment, are you willing to reach out and touch them and to help them be cleansed, to walk them through the process, or do you stand back in judgment? Ew, you're gross. You are getting what you deserve. Now, obviously, with such an exhortation, our immediate thoughts, and this is how legalism works. Well, what do I need to do to be more willing? I need to be more willing. Well, you can't. (laughs) Anything you should learn from the Sermon on the Mount is that you can't do it. And Jesus isn't asking you to do it. He wants to do it through you. We sing that song, the prayer of St. Francis, make of me your hands and feet. I want to be willing, but I'm not. So how do I rectify that if I want to be more like Christ? Well, you can't do Christ-likeness. You must be Christ-like. So if you're not willing, it just is an indicator that you're not quite as Christ-like as you think you are which is why we should come to Jesus and say, Lord, make me. Make me more like you. Give me a heart for the leper, the heart that you have. So, Father, Lord, we...